everyone. Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, joined by the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki. What's up, dude? Hey, man. I'm here attending on the wards right now. Uh, doing okay, though. That's good. This is episode number 106, Abnormal Normal Labs. And that's not just a play on words, folks. What we're going to talk about today are common questions we get about quote unquote labs and particularly uh, some hormones and different uh, uh, surrogate markers of uh, different organs functions and how exercise affects these laboratory measurements. And so this might be useful if you're going to the doctor and you're getting your, as my dad would say, I'm getting my yearly labs done. And I'm like, what? Do you, what? And then he, <laughs> well, we just leave it there because yeah. I, it's just a, yeah, that's, that's a rabbit hole. If you're curious about what labs you should be having done and maybe some discussion about that, we have a screening podcast that uh, would recommend checking out because um, that's a whole nother rabbit hole to go down. But, uh, you know, we're going to talk about how exercise affects some common laboratory values. And so if you're a clinician or if you get your labs done, this is something that you could kind of take into consideration when looking at labs which should be the title of a book. Honestly, it should just like looking at labs. And then it's just, <laughs> it's like a hundred pages of different laboratory, like readouts. And then like, you know, a case, like what do. Yeah, so, sounds like a description of uh, internal medicine. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. It should be like, that's your internal medicine, like get ready for wards. Okay. So look, before we get into like specific laboratory values, we know that we should expect changes in laboratory values just based on what exercise uh, and physical activity actually does to the body. So let's let's start there, Austin. What kind of changes routinely happen in the body that may influence and 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 as we'll see, oftentimes do influence different uh, lab values? Yeah. So there's a whole bunch of things that can occur in the setting of exercise that can influence this. And, and some are going to be pretty easy to, to understand if you recognize that a lot of the measurements that we take in the blood are actually concentrations, meaning we're measuring the amount of this particular compound or molecule or substance or whatever the case is per unit volume of blood or serum or plasma. And so exercise, people will recognize they get hot and sweaty and tired, as they say, and uh, you end up, the volume status is going to change, meaning that you might get a little more dehydrated, or in other contexts, you may overhydrate to, to compensate for that. And so basically, these volume changes, they affect the denominator in that kind of concentration equation of the amount of a substance per unit volume that it's contained in. Now, uh, when, you t when, you say, when you say volume, just to make sure that everyone is clear, what, ex yeah. what exactly do you mean? Sure. This is a, definitely a different uh, uh, context for the word volume than we typically talk about on this podcast. Volume here refers to the amount of uh, uh, fluid that is circulating around in your vascular space. So meaning in your, in your blood vessels, the amount of volume that is, that is uh, kind of swimming around in your bloodstream, because that's where we're drawing from in order to measure these things. Um, there are multiple other aspects to the volume conversation, intravascular and, and, you know, the compart compartments and, and outside, but we don't need to get into that. We're, we're primarily talking about the amount of fluid that is circulating around in your bloodstream, we're drawing some of that out and we're measuring the amount of a substance in a particular amount of that fluid that gives us a concentration, for example, in a, uh, uh, say, grams per liter 
would be a, an example of a concentration that you could uh, measure. And so any change in that um, intravascular volume, the, the amount of fluid can alter the concentration that comes out when you measure it. Yeah. So people would classically, if they haven't have no, uh, happen to have no formal medical training, might think about this as like hydration status. So, but that's not the whole story here. So for instance, you can have low volume, so hypovolemia, or you can have expanded volume, so hypervolemia, and then have all sorts of different concentrations of you know, electrolytes or other, you know, organic and inorganic molecules, depending on how many of those are floating around in that fluid space. So it's just a more complicated, or some might say, nuanced discussion than Mm -hmm. just hydrated or dehydrated. But in any case, when we refer to volume, we're talking about all that fluid in in the vascular space. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, plasma volume changes when you exercise. Uh, So for example, there's a study by Wilkerson et al. that looked at uh, total testosterone levels um, during exercise, uh, particularly increasing intensities of running. And so effectively, these folks are sweating, right? And, and they're breathing off a bunch of stuff too, you know, uh, a CO2 and, and uh, you know, a little bit of fluid gets out there too. So you see a decrease in plasma volume. So then if you decrease the plasma volume and your testosterone levels effectively didn't change, you know. The concentration is going to be higher. Exactly. Correct. So testosterone levels go up, running increases testosterone levels, but did they, <laughs> but did they? And so they, and the way that they verified this was that the, uh, red blood cells floating around in the bloodstream also increased in concentration. So it's not like you're just spontaneously making more testosterone or making more red blood cells. You just lost a little bit of that fluid. So plasma volume changes can readily influence different laboratory assays or tests. Uh, what else happens, Austin? Yeah, there are all kinds of changes to uh, our kind of energetics with exercise. In other words, the the tissues are utilizing energy, your metabolism is running at kind of different rates during exercise, immediately after exercise versus at rest or or, or pre-exercise. And this has also a bunch of kind of downstream consequences with the metabolism and clearance of varying various substances that can then manifest as variation in the lab measurements when they are taken at a particular time relative to exercise. Yeah. So for example, uh, specifically with respect to clearance, uh, not to be confused with clearance, but the clearance of these sort of uh, either hormones or different sort of uh, molecules from the bloodstream, either from the liver or kidney uh, or both, uh, can change secondary to physical activity. So, you know, the reduction in, in blood flow to the, to those organs and because they're not, you know, essential for performing vigorous activity, for example. Um, a study by Kaiser et al. showed that there was reduced estrogen clearance in women uh, secondary to exercise. So if you reduce the clearance of a molecule and the plasma volume goes down, or even if it stays the same, if, it, if the exercise isn't prolonged and people aren't sweating a bunch, what would you expect to happen? Well, estrogen levels in that case would, would go up and that's, that's what they found. And so that's, again, it's an artifact of something that's happening during exercise and not a quote unquote true increase mm-hmm. in estrogen. It's just like a, it's something that occurs secondary to the effects of exercise on other organs, but does it mean anything? And we're going right. to keep coming back to that. Like, does this matter? So, okay. Uh, other sort of changes that can happen secondary to exercise. So postural changes, literally going from like a stooped posture to standing straight up or a supine posture, laying down and standing up, which happens in certain exercises can affect where that 
plasma volume is and where all those hormones or molecules are in the body. And so where you're sampling them from, like taking the physical, the blood specimen that can all affect the readings that you get, uh, the timing that you're actually sampling. So is it right during exercise? Does somebody have, you know, a catheter, uh, you know, in a vein where they're actually sampling stuff constantly, or is it right after exercise or hours after exercise that can all affect what happens. Um, and then the actual tests that they're doing as well. Uh, and finally the actual sort of pulsatility, if there is one of a hormone, if we're measuring that. So for example, testosterone levels peak at certain times, um, you know, and, and different trophic hormones peak, uh, or, you know, uh, at certain times they have a circadian rhythm, uh, for example. And so, depending on what time of day you're measuring these things. So if you measure testosterone levels late in the day, you'd expect them to be lower. But if during another test, you measured them at first thing in the morning, you might see an artificial decrease. So it is complex. And so when we discuss these things, we're going to try to cover all of those potential confounding factors and try to give you a more accurate lay of the land. And then finally wrap up each section by saying, does this matter? Uh, because that's, that's the real point here. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think there's even uh, several more, you know, potential confounders that we haven't even gotten into here. But all of this is to illustrate up front that lab interpretation is pretty tricky. And, and, um, uh, it, and it, it's part of why we caution people against just going out and getting a bunch of their own labs and attempt, attempting to interpret them. I mean, you're a, a free and autonomous human, you can go and do that if you want. But we would just caution you against drawing really confident conclusions based on the numbers you get, because there's just a whole lot that goes into trying to interpret the significance of these things for a particular person at a particular time, based on what they're experiencing. Yep, I was like the, the radiologist sort of, you know, sign offline. It's like, please correlate clinically. It's like, that's, that's what has to happen with the set of laboratory values it needs to be correlated clinically by somebody with the requisite training to do so. And so yeah. you might see some lab values that are like, whoa, that looks abnormal or, and potentially worrisome, but right. in a particular context, it's completely benign. Or similarly, you might see laboratory values that are within normal limits and you say, I'm fine. But in that particular context, be actually worrisome, which, you know, we're going to get into the weeds here a little bit. So let's, let's kick this off. Let's, let's, let's start here. Austin, you took this first topic, uh, creatinine, yeah. which should not be confused with creatine. Uh, when we'll get into that. So first off, what the heck even is creatinine? It's like, can I buy this in a supplement store? Like, is this like creatine on steroids? Like, what is it? So, um, I, I, I don't know actually if you could buy creatinine, I see no purpose for that or why you would want to buy such a thing. <laughs> Um, but basically, creatinine is a metabolic byproduct of creatine. Uh, and note the difference in those those two words. Uh, creatine itself is a substance that is found in skeletal muscle, in meat that's in your diet, and obviously in supplements, like when you supplement creatine. It's involved in some of the uh, intracellular energetics having to do with moving around ATP and things like that that we don't necessarily need to get into in detail here. But when that is metabolized, it's broken down into something called creatinine. And that test is used in the assessment of people's kidney function. Um, basically, the, the kidneys are our organs that filter our blood, help us regulate our uh, all of our electrolytes and our acid base kind of status. And they are involved in blood production and vitamin D metabolism and calcium and all kinds of very important processes. Um, and so it's important for us to be able to uh, assess or estimate how well somebody's kidneys are functioning. And that is what we use the measurement of creatinine as a concentration in the blood to estimate. So it's basically a proxy, a surrogate measure of how well your kidneys are both filtering and secreting 
different organic and inorganic molecules. Because if you see an abnormal uh, creatinine value, you're like, why is this happening? Is the kidney not working? Or do you have way too much of this stuff and the kidney can't keep up? Or like, what's going on? But what is a normal creatinine value? And like, what what does that reflect? Yeah. So, so the idea is that when somebody is in stable health, kind of homeostasis, so to speak, and they're consuming a consistent diet, uh, creatinine is going to be released into their bloodstream at a pretty constant rate, i.e. released from the muscles where it's kind of being produced. Um, it's then going to be filtered by the kidneys at a relatively constant rate, again, for people who are in a stable kind of homeostasis uh, state. And as a result, if it's being produced and filtered at the same rate, give or take, then we would expect the concentration should in general remain fairly constant. Um, there, there's going to be a bit of variation in kind of lab reference ranges uh, here and there. In general, you know, we tend to see normal levels ranging from like a 0.6 to 1.2, 1.3. This is milligrams per deciliter. And we're going to be the arrogant Americans here using our own <laughs> unit system. And yeah, the rest right, of the world yeah. uses micromoles per liter, I think. Um, uh, so, so those require uh, conversion, obviously. Um, but give or take, though, that's kind of what, what's thought to be a, a fairly typical kind of normal range. There is, uh, of course, going to be some variation in this range between normal individuals. And uh, this is affected by a bunch of things, age, sex, uh, uh, dietary intake, um, as well as muscle mass. Um, and, and probably a significant component of that sex differentiation is average muscle mass that people are carrying. Because as I said, again, that this is um, related to the amount of muscle mass somebody's carrying, creatine being contained in, in muscle cells. So there's also a bunch of limitations to the lab measurement itself. There's going to be variation in creatinine production and secretion in the, in the kidney and limitations to the lab tests themselves. But overall, this is what we're using because it, it's just founded on these assumptions that, hey, we should be producing this at a pretty, pretty constant rate and filtering it at a pretty constant rate. So the level should stay fairly constant. If that level suddenly increases, then that raises the question, you know, for some reason, um, uh, the presumption in most cases, why isn't the kidney filtering it as effectively anymore? And so it's building up and accumulating. And so that's kind of the theory behind it. But of course, there are other reasons why it may go up, such as supplementation, or if you, uh, I suppose, if you suddenly go major meat intake, high, 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 high amounts of creatine uh, uh, intake in the diet, that would be tough, actually, to consume enough meat to do that. But I suppose it's, uh, it's plausible. Um, and supplementation have been known to uh, increase uh, uh, blood levels of creatinine when they're measured, particularly in pro- close proximity to that to that intake. Yep. So with respect to the meat question, we're talking about kilos of meat. Yeah. <laughs> kilos kilograms of of red meat being consumed on a daily basis that's new and uh, and and close uh temporally so time-wise to the blood draw. With respect to diet uh, like dietary supplements, um creatine supplements have been known to increase uh creatinine levels and almost mimic, you know, what we're actually looking out for, which is basically you know, uh, uh, abnormal kidney function, um, particularly creatine supplements that aren't creatine monohydrate. So creatine monohydrate for the most part is absorbed through the gut, goes into the bloodstream and then heads its, you know, makes its way to the muscle to get, to incorporate itself into, uh, the muscles for energy production, um, amongst a few other functions. It doesn't typically do much cyclization, meaning like a chemical conversion to creatinine in the bloodstream. Conversely, stuff like, uh, crealkalin and other forms of crea- uh, creatine that are not well absorbed, which is basically all the other types besides creatine monohydrate and uh, creatine hydrochloride. So any other type of creatine that's been studied so far, uh, to my knowledge, has a high cyclization rate, meaning that it just cyclizes 
chemically converts itself to creatinine and you can see crazy creatinine values. We're talking, so Austin just said that the normal range based on the lab is somewhere between 0.6 or 0.7 to 1.2 to 1.3 milligrams per deciliter. We're talking like seven, eight, nine. And, and can you imagine if you saw a patient, you know, you got consulted for a patient in the emergency room and their creatinine level was nine. You'd be like, this person's got kidney failure. And in yeah, fact, I, that's <laughs> that's why we wrote this paper, you know, that uh, dietary creatine supplementation mimics acute kidney injury. And that's paper you can search. Uh, it's available uh, online. Uh, and it's, you know, uh, about half of the United States actually uses a dietary supplement. As far as how many people use creatine, that's not really well studied right now. But in the military, for example, it's about a quarter of all new military recruits. So this is not like an isolated problem. It's potentially, you know, widespread. And so if you're a clinician, you should know that. And if you take creatine, you, you should know that too. If you've been taking it for a long time, you're taking creatine monohydrate, probably doesn't do that. But, uh, you know, there's definitely some risk there. Um, the real question to you, Dr. Baraki, like, when would you worry about yeah. a creatinine level? Right. So this is kind of gets to the, the reason why we included this here, because this is something we do get questions about. People come on the forum and they'll post their labs and they'll say, I'm worried because I have I got my labs done and my, my creatinine measurement here was 1.3 or 1.4 or something like that. And uh, and my doctor told me that it's because I'm dehydrated or they told me that it's because I'm taking creatine or it's you know, and they told me to stop lifting weights. <laughs> um, and, and so this is a situation where it reflects uh, either a lack of knowledge and or not really uh, terribly critical thinking about the lab value itself in a lot of cases. So as I mentioned, this uh, uh, measurement of creatinine, it can be affected by muscle mass. That's one thing. And so the more jacked people are in general, they tend the, the serum creatinine level is going to tend to increase. And it would be not uh, uh, unusual to see this level creep up to 1.2, 1.3, maybe 1.4. We really wouldn't, uh, I, I don't tend to see it climb up too much higher than that just from people being jacked alone. Um, and it is extremely unlikely that for the vast majority of people listening to this podcast, that that's going to be the case. So if I see somebody who is super, super jacked and I see that their creatinine is 1.3 or 1.4 or something, then then my initial thought is, oh, this is more likely to be related. This, you know, fairly likely to be related to their to their muscle mass in that situation. But it's still I'm going to take a look at, you know, the other the other data that I have available. On the other hand, for people who have sarcopenia, who are who, who are very under-muscled, who have lost a whole bunch of muscle mass, um, uh, or who don't ver have very, met, uh, very much of it at all, it's uh, common to see their creatinine on the low end, so a 0.2 or a 0.3 uh, level on the ground. So that would be below the kind of this quote-unquote normal range. And that doesn't typically get too many doctors' attention because they say assume low is reflective of excellent filtration. Um, but that's not necessarily the case. You can have perfectly normal filtration, or you might even have some impairment infiltration in the creatinine may be low or normal just because you're under muscled. Uh, and we have plenty of data and I've cited it in my sarcopenia lectures where low levels of, of creatinine, like a 0.2 or a 0.3 or a 0.4. I always point that out when I see it on, on patients, uh, is something that probably reflects, um, a, a lack of muscle mass and, uh, is associated with an increased risk of, of, uh, bad things happening, including, uh, including death. Um, so that's something that we kind of pay attention to as well. Um, now if somebody's level is creeping up much higher than that, or if it doesn't seem to fit. So if I have a skinny, you know, uh, a skinny older patient with not very much muscle, and I see that their creatinine level is in that like 1.234 range, then I would say, well, that you know, they're towards the top, the upper end or just past it. And that doesn't seem to fit with how much muscle mass they're carrying. 
So I suspect they may have some degree of, you know, kidney impairment. And the, then the question is, is that, you know, is it sudden kidney impairment that it just happened? Or is it something that's chronic, you know, reflecting a long-term uh, chronic kidney disease process? And then overall, kind of regardless of the person, if it starts to creep up much higher than that, I mean, anytime I'm seeing something that's, you know, 1.4, 1.5 higher than that, I'm at least wondering in the back of my mind, is this reflective of an impairment in the filtration side of things? And I'm doing some further assessments uh, to try to sort that out. And I would not recommend, you know, uh, uh, somebody who's getting their own labs trying to figure this out for themselves. I'd, I'd recommend getting some some guidance for it. Um, but that's kind of the idea. We see these posts all the time just because this might, somebody might get a lab from their doctor or get it themselves. And then the level that may be just barely at the upper end might get flagged or, or, or highlighted as high and, and they kind of panic. And in general, you know, for the young, healthy, no medical problem listening audience who maybe train and maybe have put on a decent amount of muscle, if it's like towards the upper end of that range or maybe just past it in general, that tends to not be a, a huge source of concern. But if things are creeping up or if it's not uh, uh, kind of um, matching with the person's amount of muscle that they're carrying, then that does raise a question of is there a legitimate um, kidney impairment going on here? And then the last thing I would say is with the creatine supplementation question, that is an issue where, you know, when you're taking it, um, you're adding creatine load to the system and that can get metabolized into creatinine. But creatinine itself is in no way a toxic or harmful substance when it is present right. in the stream, even at higher concentrations. And so sometimes a doctor might say, oh, you're taking the creatine, it made your creatinine go up, it, therefore it's harming your kidneys, which is not an accurate interpretation. Um, assuming that what you're taking is actually something like creatine monohydrate, if it's pure, um, uh, because that hasn't really been shown to cause kidney impairment. Of course, there are no shortage of tainted supplements um, and other things that certainly can cause kidney failure or kidney uh, uh, injury. But if what you're taking is actually creatine, and when you take it, it's causing the measurement to go up, that's typically just reflective of a higher load of creatine to the system that's getting metabolized into creatinine not reflecting an actual impairment in your kidney function or decrease in filtration. Yep. And then basically to verify that you do a urinalysis to look at the creatinine that, that actually ends up in the urine. So effectively, you just want to make sure like, okay, my creatinine, my load has gone up and it's, it's coming out in the urine. My kidneys are working, you know, fine. Um, but I, neither of us would ignore a elevated creatinine level regardless of you know, like a, a create uh, creatinine value of two or something like that. Oh just yeah. Because yeah that one's oh, like, oh, you're, <laughs> oh, you're, you're taking, you're taking creatine. That must be what it is. I it yeah. wouldn't, it wouldn't just ignore that. It would further work up to confirm um, that it's from a benign source. Right. Um, similarly, <laughs> if it's very low, we don't just say, oh, you have sarcopenia or low muscle mass, like get jacked. It, then you'd have to screen that person actually appropriately for sarcopenia and, you know, their, their functional status and, and, and kind of go down that rabbit hole. But, uh, the only actual exercise associated change directly to creatinine that you might want to be aware of prior to laboratory testing is, uh, being dehydrated, uh, because that can obviously change the denominator. Like that's what we were talking about. And then the, the, the value might go up. Um, that being said, again, if there was a substantially elevated creatinine value, uh, probably wouldn't recommend ignoring that under any circumstance. Correct. Just, yeah. <laughs> yep. Cool. Okay. So uh, that out of the way, we're going to switch to AST and ALT. So aspartate, transaminase, and alkaline alkaline uh, phosphatase. These are uh, transaminase enzymes that participate in basically making new sugar gluconeogenesis. Uh, they effectively catalyze the transfer of amino groups from aspartic acid or alanine, those are amino acids, uh, into different Krebs cycle or citric acid cycle intermediates. 
They are liver-associated enzymes, but are also found in other organs like cardiac muscle, skeletal muscle, kidneys, brain, etc. Um, and we use these to kind of look at how the liver is doing. Now, they're not really measurements of actual liver function, uh, but basically used as a part of a general assessment of liver injury, because if they go way up, they can reflect liver cell injury, uh, although there are, again, non-liver sources of elevated AST and ALT. So it's not v super specific for just the liver, but in medicine, this is kind of how we use them, because usually large elevations in AST and ALT kind of reflect certain pathologies of the liver. So yeah, in that. particular, I would just say the AST, the aspartate transaminase is one that is like you mentioned, less specific for the liver, uh, and one that we see very commonly in the in, in muscles. So whenever there's issues going on with muscles, it's pretty typical to see AST elevations, the ALT or the alanine transaminase is the other one. That one is uh, a bit more specific for the liver, meaning it doesn't tend to go quite as high as the AST um, when things are going on with the muscles or even around exercise, uh, which is kind of the context for this particular discussion. Yep. And there's just a third one that <laughs> also find useful. You just deleted it. Well, so the thing is, uh, there's a gamma glutamyl transferase, which is called GGT. This is another, like when you order liver function tests, GGT comes back usually uh, in that panel. Um, and, and effectively, this is something we'll see that kind of helps hone in on like what's going on. Uh, in any case, uh, normal ALT levels, usually between zero to 45 international units per liter. Now, again, this is laboratory dependent, but that's just the normal range. Normal AST is between zero and 35 international units per liter. Uh, and so if we see somebody with a markedly elevated ALT and AST or, or just one or the other, um, we're like, why is that happening? <laughs> Particularly if the AST is something in the hundreds are like, wait, what? That just tells you like, suggests rather that the liver, potentially the, a lot of the liver cells are, you know, being injured and you got to figure out, well, is it because of a medication that's injuring the liver? Is it a particular medical condition that's injuring the liver? Like, you know, either infection or um, potentially a uh, uh, malignancy or something like that. Um, in any case, these normal levels vary significantly um, based on sex. So typically men have higher levels than women. Um, interestingly, BMI also has a very strong influence on these levels, actually stronger than probably the most common hepatotoxic or liver toxic substance consumed by man, which is alcohol. So there's <laughs> a stronger correlation between body mass index and LFTs, so liver function tests, these liver function tests in particular, than alcohol consumption, which is interesting. So um, in any case, Overall, we've known since the 50s that exercise increases AST and ALT. We know, we know that that happens. Um, and interestingly, they stay elevated for up to seven days. So here's a super interesting study that kind of shows you the magnitude and kind of the duration of how this occurs. So the uh, uh, study here effectively concluded or was on 15 Swedish men uh, who were participating in resistance training on a single occasion. Um, so effectively, they they trained with weights once. This is an hour-long session. They basically worked up to one hard set of 12 for a bunch of different uh, either machine exercises or bodyweight exercises. And they had previously not trained before, so previously relatively sedentary. They took the samples of AST and ALT at 1, 3, 6, 24, 48, 72 hours, and even all the way up to 168 hours, so up to a week after, to kind of figure out, like, yo, what's the trend here for these lip, uh, liver tests? All subjects had AST and ALT uh, values above the upper limit of normal at days three, four, and five. It seems to peak 
around day four and start to fall towards day seven, but still elevated above baseline at day seven. So if you had somebody, for example, who just normally hung out towards the upper limit of normal, they likely would still be above the reference range at day seven after a single bout of exercise. Um, It's interesting, like the time to the maximum value when they studied this uh, for ALT was 120 hours. So, you know, almost five days post a single bout of exercise uh, and 60 hours of that. So over half the hours were spent above the reference level. Uh, And AST took about 100 hours to get to its max level uh, and about 30 hours were spent above the reference range. And they had the individual data actually uh, reported for each of the 15 individuals that participated in the study. The highest AST value was 941 internationally (laughs) a leader. And again, just to put that in perspective, the normal range is zero to 35. So I asked, I sent, I sent this text to Austin. I was like, dude, can you imagine if you saw somebody like, and you looked at their labs before you saw the patient and their AST level was 900, like you would go in and you'd expect them to be icteric and like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, the only context that I've seen levels that high in are, are situations where people's livers are, are quite sick. So that would definitely get somebody's, uh, somebody's attention. That's kind of, that's definitely, I think the, probably a, a fairly extreme case. I don't think that's anywhere near typical or common after exercise, but the fact that it's even possible in that person was pretty wild. Yeah. Just a thing. Uh, and a healthy individual who's never exercised before, just one hour of exercise, just, you know, Again, crazy high. And, and there's nothing, again, similar to creatinine levels. There's nothing really inherently harmful about AST and ALT directly. They're not particularly toxic. They're just a marker of liver cell injury. So it's not like the AST or the ALT being elevated is like, wow, this is bad. It's just right. a marker. And, yeah. and in this case, the, 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 you mentioned that you know we often use them as markers of liver cell injury. But in this situation, the AST being that elevated, because again, that's an enzyme that is also lo- located in muscle cells that is more a marker of muscle cell injury, um, you know, as a result of exercise induced muscle damage that, that happens. And then this gets released into the bloodstream. And so similarly, you know, every time we see patients uh, with rhabdo, I just had one a few days ago and quizzed my uh, new interns on it because this patient had rhabdo um, and they came in and their AST was like, you know, in the low two hundreds and, you know, asked, Hey, what do you, what do you make of this AST? And then he started thinking, Oh gosh, I think there's something wrong with their liver. I think there's uh, you know, some toxin that's affecting their liver. And we had to just back up and go over the physiology and um, uh, note it, uh, re- remembering that AST is also found in muscle cells. It all made perfect sense. And it trended down as we treated the rhabdo and it went back to normal in this person. So that's a very common thing. And, and we get posts on the forum again about this as well. People exercise and get the labs done same day, next day, something like that. And these uh, numbers are a little, uh, uh, elevated compared to their normal, their prior, or just in the abnormal range. And the first thought in that context is typically going to be that this is exercise related in people who don't have, you know, a known medical history uh, relating to liver disease or something like that. But of course, to reassure yourself that that is actually what it is, it's often best to recheck it, you know, further away from exercise um, to yep. make sure that it is actually, it does actually normalize, uh, not around the context of training. Yep. Uh, uh, interestingly, in this study, they also measured GGT, which is why I brought it up earlier, and it was never yeah. above baseline. Um, so actually, there's a, a, a recommendation out right now. Uh, it's not, you know, a published guideline, and it's not like, you know, carrying a bunch of weight, but it's effectively expert opinion. But secondary to exercise, the thought is that, look, if somebody's within three, you know, uh, three times the upper limit of normal and is known to be involved, engage in regular strenuous exercise, and they have a normal GGT value, 
carry on. Um, it doesn't mean ignore it, you know, but, it, but the reality is that if you are resistance training, um, and participating in physical activity within a week of getting your liver function test done, it's likely that you're going to see some abnormal results here. And so if you're being, so the, the question would be, well, why are you getting your LFTs done anyway? Um, if you're trying to investigate the, you know, how a particular, you know, a liver disease, a chronic liver disease is like, you know, trending over time or, or some sort of medical medication, uh, a risk of hepatoxicity or liver toxicity, it, you might be a good candidate <laughs> for either scheduling your labs one week from your last bout of strenuous exercise, um, just to make sure that you're not getting a confounding variable in there. Um, because that would be a, you know, potentially spurious result and you just, you couldn't really use that data is what I'm getting at. Yeah. Um, long term. To, to be clear, most people don't routinely need to be getting screened for their liver function. That's correct. On yes. The list of things that we should just check to, for the sake of checking. Right. Exactly. Yep. Uh, chronically exercise, uh, again, does increase AST as you'd expect because you get a little bit more muscle damage with chronic resistance training. Um, and ALT actually tends to go down. Um, which may be adaptive on some level to just physical activity. So again, long-term it, you still might get some abnormal results up to a week after, you know, exercise. Uh, but again, you probably don't need to be screened for liver function unless you're on either a medication that requires that, or you have some other medical condition that requires periodic monitoring of this, but exercise in general can alter your liver function tests. So now, now, you know, we have a bunch of resources too. Um, just as an aside, like in the description below, there's going to be like 20 or so different resources that we're posting. So if you want to go further down the rabbit hole, you can do that. That's a wrap on part one of the abnormal normal labs podcast. We talked about creatinine. We talked about AST and ALT on part two. We're going to talk about creatine kinase, uh, creatine phosphokinase, testosterone, uh, and TSH thyroid stimulating hormone. Um, basically we go into more detail on how those change with exercise and what it means. So wanted to keep these things kind of uh, short and digestible rather than having a 90 minute podcast. Um, cause we know that people uh, have things to do and Hey, we want to make sure that you're listening to the material that we put out. So thank you so much for listening to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, joined as always by Dr. Austin Baraki. Hey, take a second. If you're listening to this on your smartphone, uh, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast, gives us some feedback so we can help keep bringing you all the latest nuanced information in the health and fitness world. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next week. See you.